Well, good morning. Well, last summer, uh, our family made it a goal to get outside and explore. If you remember uh, the summer of 2020, that was about our only option. (laughs) Um, And I know we're not the only one because when the parkway shut down and the viaduct opened up, like there was a few weeks, months where we weren't allowed to meet, but I saw half of our church out there. So I know that you got out as well. Uh, we started exploring what a wonderful area that we get to live. Uh, we we um, got an app to find new hikes in the area and just started exploring a bunch. Uh, and we got uh, more aggressive as the summer went on. We thought we would try to take uh, off uh, bigger hikes. Um, I had one in the back of my mind that I was always intrigued by, but honestly, I didn't have the guts to go on with my family. I, I had gone to Table Rock in college to climb Table Rock, actually, and I remember it being stunning. Uh, But now I have five kids and I I didn't know if I wanted to bring them out there. All I remember about Table Rock is that there was like a 90 mile dirt road to get out there. Yes, uh, some people are shaking their head. They know what I'm talking about. And then you get out on the the hike and there are literally bottomless cliffs. You just can't see the end of it. It's just huge. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to bring my kids out there. But my wife, who is way more adventurous than I am in so many areas, uh, finally talked me into it. So we packed our car and headed south to the appropriately named Linville Gorge Wilderness. It's literally a wilderness out there. Nothing. It's very remote. Um, And the entire experience was, in fact, as intimidating as I remember it. Uh, The the road, it turns out, is only eight miles, but it still feels like 90. Um, And we got to the bottom of the the, uh, hike, the chimneys hike, and it said, steep cliffs, watch children. And I've got five kids. Ah! We just walked one foot in front of the other and man, I'm glad I did. And uh, it turned out to be one of the best days our family has ever had. There's a moment when you get a a couple of miles in on the chimney's trail, the the trees break and you walk out onto this narrow spine of the ridge and you're up there in these giant crags that looks like chimneys and there's peregrine falcons nesting in the crags. And, And we use the word breathtaking, but literally it was breathtaking. Even my five children stopped talking. Like, if you've been to my house, that's a miracle. (laughs) They stopped talking. It's become one of our favorite spots. We've been back there again, and I love it. Why do I bring this up? Um, This actually, this journey that we took last summer reminds me of another journey that I recently took that actually is a bit more relevant for a Sunday morning. Uh, Earlier this year, my wife and I felt really the desire to dive into a book of the Bible. We read through the Bible every year, and if you're not doing that, I hope you do that. It's wonderful to have a Bible plan to get through the whole Bible, but we just felt a hunger to really immerse ourselves in a book of the Bible. And so we started talking about which one do we wanna start with, and my wife, who is way more adventurous than I am, as I told you, suggested Romans. What a wonderful suggestion. This is really, really good. Uh, But Romans, I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, just kind of like this hike, it's a bit intimidating. Like I've read Romans many, many, many times in my life and I understand like some of the Romans road verses that you memorize as a kid. I'm like, oh, there it is, there it is. But to grasp Paul's argument, it's a 16 chapter masterpiece. And in order to appreciate something like that, you have to devote quite a bit of attention. And I'd never been able to fully give myself over to that process. And so she suggested it and I went with it. And... um, yeah, so it, it just felt like this intimidating journey ahead of like a 90 mile dirt road blocking the way in front of it, but we just started doing it. About February, I'd say, we got these journal Bibles. Uh, we just started reading it. That's a good place to start if you wanna study a Bible, <laughs> just read it. And then we read it about 10 more times. And then we listened to the Bible. Do you listen to the Bible? 
What a wonderful gift that is that we have all sorts of different authors and or, uh, all sorts of different voices that we can listen to the Bible. We read it aloud to one another. We actually bought a journal and wrote it down. If you've not read, that's how I start every one of my sermon prep. I just write down the text. And there's something wonderful that happens when you do that. We got commentaries. We just fully immersed ourselves in the book of Romans. And the most amazing thing started to happen. Just like what happened at Table Rock, we walked out and, and just almost felt like the theological views just started to open up. And I could see Paul's argument like I never have before. And it was stunning. Beautiful, breathtaking theology through the book of Romans. And now I understand why guys like Augustine and Luther, they have these break, just groundbreaking moments when they read the book of Romans. The Romans was impacting the way I thought, which is exactly what the gospel should do. And that means that it was impacting the way that I lived and the way that I acted, which is exactly what the gospel should do. It's all here in the book of Romans. And so over the next three weeks, I would like to spend our time walking through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott's doing a wedding this week and he's out the next two. And so I wanna go through Romans while he's gone. Now you're thinking, that's crazy. You're, cra you're out of your mind. We can barely get through third or second John in three weeks. And second John's this big. And now you want to go through Romans on Scott's vacation? Uh, here we go. I, I, I realize that's a, a crazy goal and we're not going to fully explain Romans. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you an overview of the book, at least the first eight chapters, so that you can have the confidence to walk it on your own. If I can prove to you that it's not as intimidating as you might think it is, uh, and I can get you to walk Romans on your own, I will have succeeded because when you get into Romans, you will understand the gospel. And when you understand the gospel, everything in your life will change. So that's our goal for the next couple of weeks. I want to call this series a walk through Romans. And that's not just a cute tie-in with my hiking illustration or the Romans road, maybe that you heard as a kid. There's actually a deliberate uh, purpose for calling it a walk through Romans. One of the things I discovered when I was studying and reading the Bible over and over earlier this year is Paul's use of the word walk. It's actually a nice metaphor for the gospel and how the gospel impacts us. And it comes up at very strategic, I would say landmark moments in the book. It comes up in chapter four, where we learn to walk in the faith of Abraham. It's uh, four verse 12. It comes up in uh, chapter six, walk in the newness of life. We say this when we do baptisms. That's where we get that from in chapter six. And it comes up in chapter eight, walk in the spirit. And these are some main concepts to help you understand the gospel. And when you can get that, you really can walk the Christian life. Now, I thought this was pretty exciting. Like this was a, like a discovery that I had made and I, my office is right next to Scott's. It's nice sharing an office suite with a theologian. And so I was like super excited about this. He came into my office. I told him my strategy for preaching through Romans. You know what he said? He thought about it for a second and he goes, are you too chicken to preach Romans 9? <laughs> that's what he said. That's, that's what I got from Scott. So <laughs> give me a fourth week and we'll find out. Maybe, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, never mind. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 4. There we go. Turn to Romans 4. This is the first landmark that I'd like to point out because in this chapter, Paul will show us the necessity of walking in faith. This is crucial to understanding the gospel, key to understanding the gospel. Romans 4 is a remarkable chapter, and I'm not sure I would have understood this as much as I did a few months ago, but um, it really has, it, it's a strategic point in the book. But in order to get the most out of Romans 4, which is what we're gonna look at today, we really need to understand what Paul has talked about in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And so if you'll allow me a five-minute overview, we're gonna go through these first three chapters so you can make the most sense of Romans 4. Now, when you think about the letter to the church in Rome, I want you to think one thing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans 
Chapter one, verses 16 and 17, Paul gives the statement that will uh, explain everything he's about to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This is what Paul is writing about. And from this verse, Paul will go on to articulate the most comprehensive, the most sustained, and the most logical explanation of the gospel that's written in the Bible or really anywhere in the world. Romans is a brilliant description of the gospel. I was actually talking uh, to Hunter Coltrap earlier this week about Romans, and he said that he recently connected with one of his friends who was in law school. And they were talking about Romans, and this buddy of his said, yeah, actually one of my professors had us read Romans. That's interesting. Is this guy a Christian? What was the purpose of that? He goes, no, he wasn't a Christian. He's a lawyer. He, he, He understood, though, a good argument when he saw one. And he wanted his students to read Romans so that they could know how to craft an airtight argument. Romans is that good. It it is a brilliant book. Paul had preached the gospel for decades, and so he had taught it in a variety of different contexts, and he knew how to craft a really powerful explanation of the gospel. He knew what people's objections would be. That's what you have in Romans. Now, because he was so skilled at this, he knew the exact right place to start. Now, where would you start your presentation of the gospel? If you had to just start writing out the gospel, where would you start? or explaining it to a friend at lunch. I bet most of us would start with God's love. We want people to know that God loves them, and that's actually an entirely appropriate place to start. Often we go to the creation and and explain who God is, and that's wonderful and good, but I find it very interesting that Paul begins his explanation of the gospel with God's wrath. Romans 1.18, right after he says, here's what the gospel is, Romans 1.18 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he will then go on to explain what he means by that. The first three chapters of Romans, I want you to hear this, are some of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. They are heavy because they explain very clearly, very detailed how humans have rebelled against God. Nobody is exempt. There's not a single person in this room that's exempt from these descriptions in Romans 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul described how the Gentiles openly rebelled against God. God had revealed his truth, and it was clear to them that there is a God, but you know what they did? They suppressed the truth. They didn't want to believe in that truth, so they suppressed it so that they could live in their lusts. And so you know what God did? He gave them over. That was his wrath. It's what we call the passive wrath. You want to try that? Try it. Go for it. That's what God said. In Romans chapter 1, he's giving these Gentiles over to their lusts, which is most clearly seen, by the way, in their embrace of homosexuality. That's right there, the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1. Well, the religious community is reading Romans 1 going, I'm glad we're not like that. So in Romans 2, Paul turns his attention on the righteous Jews who thought that they were perfect. They had the law, and they were trying their best to climb up the law and do everything that the law said. Paul turns his attention on them and says, listen, you think you're better, you're not. You actually have the law, and you fall just horribly short. Nobody is exempt from this. And so at the beginning of Romans 3, he summarizes our helpless condition by just listing Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. All of us have turned away. There is no fear of God before their eyes, our eyes. That's us. In these opening chapters, Paul will slam the door shut on on the idea, the notion that any human can work their way back to God. 
that we can somehow impress God or that we can somehow give a report card where God goes, yeah, pretty good. You did a good job. Paul shuts the door on that. We are completely lost. There is no way out. This is where the gospel begins. And the world needs to know it. And quite frankly, the church needs to remember this. One of the greatest challenges we face as a church is that people simply don't think that they are lost. Several decades ago, maybe people had this idea that I'm lost and I need help. You don't find that anymore. Are, are you broken? Are you lost? No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm all right. And I think that even kind of trickles into the church even. This is an offensive doctrine that God is angry at sin. <clears throat> I have letters and emails from people that do not like it when I talk about the brokenness of sin and our helpless condition, but this isn't my message. This is the Bible's message and we need to preach it. We need to be very clear. <clears throat> Paul starts in a very dark place, but it is the right place. Because if you have never wrestled with the fact that God is angry with your sin, you will never taste the sweetness of God's grace in your life. It precedes the good news. The bad news has to come first. So the question at this point in Romans is, how can we be made right with God? Is it even possible for us to taste the sweetness of God's grace in our lives? We're, we're, this is a crux of the book, darkness. The answer is astonishing. In verse 21 of Romans chapter three, in fact, if you have your Bible, I just want you to look at it. I want you just to find the paragraph that, that starts in verse 21. <clears throat> Most scholars, theologians, and pastors would, would agree with me that you are looking at the greatest paragraph ever written. Against the darkness of our fallen condition, Paul says these words, but now, bright light shining in. The righteousness of God <clears throat> has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the heartbeat right here of Christianity. This is the central message. It was impossible for us to rise up to God or to impress God or find his approval, but God came down to us to save us. Do you see the movement? We can't rise up, but God came down. And that's what this passage tells us. <clears throat> this doctrine is called the justification uh, by faith. We are justified, made right, made uh, pure by faith. And it separates Christianity from every other religion. Now, I want you to know that Paul will not simply mention this doctrine here and then move on. Well, we've covered doctrine of justification by faith. Let's move on to other things. No, no, no. This is the point of Romans. This is why he wrote Romans, to explain this doctrine. He will go on now to illustrate it, to explain it further, to apply it, to, to work out the implications of what that means. That's what's going on here in, in the book of Romans. Now, I think this should help set us up to understand Romans chapter four now. We've come to the beginning of Romans four. <clears throat> what Paul will do is he will take the truth that we just read at the end of Romans three, that we've been justified by faith. Now, as brilliant as that paragraph is, it's also very complex, isn't it? If you look through it, it's like, man, that's a lot of theological words. So Paul's gonna take this and bring it to life. And how do you do that? You illustrate it by telling a story. He told us the doctrine. Now he's gonna show us by putting like flesh on it and to say, let me give you a picture of somebody that was trying to work, but, but is justified by faith. Now, who would be the perfect person to choose for this? I think Paul himself would have been a perfect person, wouldn't he? 
In fact, and there's a lot of books where Paul goes into his biography and he explains, hey, I was on the Damascus road. I was trying this way and God showed me a brand new way. Paul was the poster boy for the Christian faith and he would have been a great example here. If Romans 4 had been about Paul, it would have been a wonderful chapter, but Paul had a better trick up his sleeves. Instead of looking to himself or any of the other living apostles, he went all the way back in the Old Testament, right to the very beginning, and he found Abraham. And he goes, you want a picture of somebody that was saved by faith? Look at Abraham. Now, that might not be a big deal to this room, but this is a very bold move, what Paul is doing here by selecting Abraham to be the poster boy for the Christian faith. You can almost hear when Paul mentions the word Abraham at the beginning of Romans 4, you can almost hear the rabbis tearing their cloak. How dare you bring Abraham into the Bible? No, no, no. Abraham is not part of Christianity. Abraham is a man of works. Abraham obeyed God and that made him holy before God. Don't try to mix Abraham up with your Christian faith. But in Romans 4, Paul's gonna tell a different story. And actually it turns out to be way more biblical of a story. He's gonna go back to the Bible and describe how Abraham was made righteous. He was godly because he believed. And because of that, Abraham is the perfect example for us. Someone who was declared righteous, not by what he did, but because what he believed. It's a shocking move from Paul, but it's brilliant, which is why we love Romans. And so let me give you an outline of Romans chapter four. This is how I wanna outline the chapter for you. You can see it on the screen behind me. This is a big, big outline. Romans 4, 1 through 12, we're gonna talk about Abraham's justification, how he was declared righteous before God. And then the second half of the chapter, we're gonna look at what that did to him. How did that change his life? Romans chapter four, verses 13 to 25, we'll talk about his faith and how he lived into that. Remember, this is a walkthrough. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna leave out some stuff. There's some nice little flowers and views I would love to show you along the way, but we're trying to get through so that you can learn how to read Romans four on your own later. So here we go. First, let's look at Abraham's justification. Everybody knew that Abraham was a righteous and a godly man. The question was, how was he righteous? What was it that made him Righteous before God. The Jews, like I just mentioned, the first century Jews especially would have said, Abraham was righteous because he obeyed. He was a perfect model of obedience. God told him to do something, and what did he do? He did it. You remember Genesis 22, where God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. What did Abraham do? Did he hem and did he haw? Did he get on a ship and go to Tarshish? Or, no, he didn't. He, he obeyed God. He got the sacrifice ready and he walked up the hill to sacrifice his son. We remember how that went. God was just testing him. He, he intervened in that story. But like to the Jews, they look at Genesis 22 and they go, that's our guy. We wanna walk in the footsteps of his obedience. And so they were climbing the mountain, trying to follow in the footsteps of Abraham's obedience. Paul will tell us a different story. It tells us a different story. Paul knew where the life of Abraham's obedience was born. And so in Romans 4, 3, he goes, don't you know your Bible? What does the Bible say, guys? Look at the Bible. And then he takes the photo album of Abraham's life. And he goes from Genesis 22, and he goes back a couple of decades when he you know, had a little bit longer hair. And he goes back to Genesis 15, and he goes and he points and he says, this is the moment where Abraham's life was born. In Genesis 15, uh, Hunter just read it. It was there under the starry skies of Canaan, when God descended to an old, formerly pagan man, an uncircumcised man, 
named Abram, and he made a promise, and he said, look up at the stars and count them if you can. You can't do it. So shall your offspring be. And that stunning line, Abraham believed in that marvel. He goes, I don't know how you're going to do this, but he just believed, God, you're going to do this. And God counted that to him as his righteousness. It's right there in the text. Paul was showing in Romans 4 that that was the defining moment in Abraham's life. He was an ungodly man, an unfruitful man, and an uncircumcised man. If you read the rest of Romans 4, Paul will make a very big deal about this. And the reason why, it, it, this happened decades before he, he circumcised his children or he was circumcised himself. The point of this is that Abraham did not have a single thing to stand on. His report card was empty. I have nothing except faith. Actually, he had something. He had a promise. God said, so shall your offspring be, and Abraham held on to that promise, and it changed his life. That's, that's where Abraham's obedience, where his righteousness was born. Paul is doing a brilliant move here. He's showing the church, he's writing to the Roman church, and he's telling them to look back at Abraham, and he's saying, he's the perfect model of faith. It's never been about works. Abraham wasn't justified by his works. Abraham was justified by his faith. It's never been about works, church. There's not been a single soul to stand before Jesus, a single human to stand before Jesus and say, I did it. It's always been about faith. This is the central message of Romans, and really it's the central message of the entire Bible. If you miss this, you miss everything. You, you might look Christian, but it, it, you've missed the heart of Christianity that we are justified by our faith. But it is so easy to miss. And we miss it all the time. Because it requires you to have the virtues of humility. It requires you to be empty. It requires you to be receptive, just like Abraham was all those years ago under the starry sky. And those, by the way, are not virtues that our world celebrates at all. Like if you're empty, fill yourself up. Get unempty, right? We, every other religion in the world including, and I would say especially, the, the, the widespread religion of secularism that all of us are completely immersed in tells a different story. It tells a story where we have to rise up. It's all on you. You have to prove that you're worth it. You have to prove that you can find the answers. You have to prove that you're good enough, that you're strong enough, that you can make a difference in this world. And on the front end, we actually really love that story. It's, what, it's why we binge watch shows that tell us that story and why we have podcasts that reinforce that narrative in our head. Because on the front end, when things are going really well, we love to celebrate in our own strength. But it is miserable on the back end and it has a back end. And if you've not felt it yet, you will feel the back end of that you can't. It turns out Romans 1 through 3, it's true. You can't rise up, even to your own standards of goodness and greatness. Like, how do you know that you're ever doing enough? Am I a good enough dad? Am I a good enough mom? Am I screwing my kids up? Ah! If you think that, then you have to go to bed and you like toss and turn on your bed and you go, gotta work harder. I gotta fix this problem. Is my business gonna survive? Because if I get laid off or I get fired, what, what am I worth? What, and it just causes you to churn and churn and churn. What happens when you fail? When you forget your devotions, you just 
mess up with that sin that just keeps plaguing you. Like it drives you to anxiety and to despair and you believe that, man, it's up to me, it's up to me, it's up to me. The gospel, friends, it's complete, completely does away with all of that thinking. And Romans 4 shows us how. It says, Romans 4 verse 5, I want you to look at that. It says that if you believe that God justifies the ungodly, that will be counted to you as righteousness. John Stott, by the way, brilliant commentator, says that Romans 4 5 is the most startling line in the entire book. You might want to circle that. God justifies the ungodly. Do you believe Romans 1 through 3? You're ungodly? It's liberating when you finally can believe that because then you can get to the good part where it says God justifies the ungodly. He sets you free. Like what a beautiful truth that is. Like that transforms your life. God loves you. Like you cannot rise up to God. It's impossible. That truth will set you free. You can't be a good enough parent. You can't be perfect. Stop trying. Instead, God has taken the perfect blood of his son Jesus and he has credited it into your account. That's what the, the, the concept here in Romans 4 is. It's a crediting. Like you couldn't earn enough salary to get there, but you just check your bank account and it is full to the top because God credited your account with the blood of Jesus. That changes everything in your life. The wrath we talked about in one, one through three, like it was fully absorbed on the cross of Jesus and he is not angry with you. God loves you. I have had to remind myself of this truth about 20 times already today because in my heart, I just feel that churn. I gotta prove something. I got something to prove, right? And I just, no, 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 it's already been proven. And you know, I can breathe when I say that. What a, what a glorious truth. When you understand the gospel like that, everything in your life changes. And this is exactly what happened to Abraham. And this, by the way, is why he was such a brilliant, obedient man. Because he was justified early on. And this allowed him to be courageously, radically obedient to God. God credited his account and he was faithful to that. This is the second part of our outline. We're gonna see just that very thing that in uh, the, the God, the faith that he had actually transformed him to be able to live a godly life. This is what the gospel does. I'm gonna read verses 18 to 22. And this is a really important text because what it does is it allows us to get inside the head of somebody who knows he's been justified by, the, by, by, by faith. And we're gonna see how this, this played out in his head. And I think we need this, I really do. So listen to verses 18 to 22. Speaking of Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. I find it interesting. Some people say, maybe you've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this, actually. Maybe you actually believe this. That faith is opposed to reason. You can either be a thinking person or you can be a, a person that believes. You hear that before? That's uh, not true. Actually, in Romans 4, it tells us this very thing. Abraham was actually a very thinking person. Like he, he was a very rational person. 
He looked at the data and he analyzed it and he considered it. Did you see that text? He, Abraham considered. He was just dealing with two different sets of data here, okay? The first set was his physical circumstances. And it says he, he considered these. And what he saw really wasn't good. Abraham, um, Paul tells us that he was old. He was, he was very, very old. In fact, he was as good as dead. <laughs> like, thank you, Paul, for that. You know, you're just digging it in. Like, come on, man. I know I'm old, right? Come on. <laughs> and he looked at his wife and she was barren. Like she couldn't have a baby when she was a young woman. Now she, like, there's no chance. The physical scientific data was in and it wasn't good. Like it was telling him, you cannot have a child. Don't even dream about it. Don't have whatever, just it, it won't happen. But that's not the only piece of information that Abraham was processing, was it? There's another piece of information that he had. He had the word of God. He had the promise. Remember the, the, the scene under the starry sky where he looked up at the stars? What did God say to him? So shall your offspring be. That's data. Don't discount that. The word of God was spoken to his life. And so now Abraham has a choice. Am I going to believe the facts? Or am I going to believe the word of God? Am I going to believe in what I can see because what I can see is not good? Or am I going to believe in what I cannot see and have trust and have faith that God will come through? Cold hard facts or, or belief in God? Am I going to believe that like I can't have a child? Or am I going to believe that God who raises, who gives life to the dead? Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He had a choice to make. Do you see that? And that's a choice that he just had to continually make before God, just that he would continue to believe, continue to have faith. Friends, that is what a life of faith looks like. That you've gotten inside the head of somebody that has lived a life of faith. Now it's your turn. I know that when you came into this room, you, you brought in challenges and obstacles insurmountable problems and barriers and things that are holding you back. And I know it. And you know what? It's okay for you to consider your problems. Abraham considered his problems. I think it's actually unhealthy to, to not consider your problems. To go, oh, it's fine, never, never mind, I'm just gonna grind on. That's works. It's actually okay that the psalmist actually write out, I, why, oh Lord, they just, they, they share their problems. Abraham considered. I want you to consider your problems. That's healthy. Here's what's unhealthy. When you consider your problems and that's it. That's a despairing life. It's a hopeless life. Don't let your problems have the final word because there's something else you need to consider. That's God's word, his promise spoken to you. We can learn from Abraham to choose to listen to and believe God's word. Abraham held on to the promise, so shall your offspring be. And you're like, well, that was for Abraham. I don't have a promise like that. God's not revealed anything under the starry skies. I, I, I go out under the stars and I lay out there and I'm like, where are you, God? I can't hear. God has given you a promise. It's actually right here at the end of Romans 4. This is God's word to you. Let's read it. Verses 23 to 25 and I'm done. But the words that was counted to him were not just written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In many ways, the promises that God has made to us is far greater than the one he made to Abraham. 
we actually get to see the cross. And we get to believe in the God who raises life from the dead because he raised Jesus from the dead. We get to believe the promise that if we believe he's given us the righteous blood of Jesus and credited to our account, he has given us the spirit. Like I'm not saying that like God will fix all your problems and make you succeed in life. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying God has given you the spirit. He's given you a promise that he will sustain you. He will guide you. He will give you what you need in your weakness. That's a promise from God. Do you believe that? Don't let your problems get the final word in your life. Choose to believe in God. Put your eyes on him. And this is the last thing that I wanna say. When you turn your eyes off your problems and put them on God, guess what happens to you? You gain strength. When you look at your problems, you just cower and you just, I can't sleep and I can't, I can't live, I can't get out of my bed. When you look to God, you gain strength day by day. This is exactly what happened to Abraham. He grew in strength, unwavering. Read that end of, the, end of Romans 4 again. He, as he gave glory to God, he grew in his faith. On the outside, we are wasting away. But inwardly, we are being renewed day by day as we train our eyes in faith to look to God. And so this morning, I want you to choose to trust in God and watch what he does.